Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Deutsche Bank and Commerce Bank, the talks are over. I want to bring in Bloomberg's Matt Miller to get up to speed. On the end of merger talks, Matt, what broke in? Well, uh, Berlin has been against this really from from day one, with the exception of the finance ministry. Olaf Scholz and his deputy, Jörg Cookies, were really, uh, you know, the driving force behind these talks to begin with. But as soon as people started talking about 30 to 40,000 job cuts as a result, it just was uh, it just was a bad look for everybody here and Angela Merkel and the and the rest of the um and the rest of the powerful politicians in the capital fought against it. So from a Deutsche Bank perspective, it was just, um, at least what they said this morning, it it just proved to be too expensive and too complex to pull off. But from a political perspective, it just wasn't going to fly. So Commerce Bank potentially have got other dance partners. We've seen in the news, IG are interested. We've seen in the news several reports that Unicredit is said to be interested as well. Where does it leave Deutsche Bank, Matt? Yeah, I actually asked the CFO, James von Moltke, this today because obviously by stepping out of uh, the running to buy Commerce Bank, they leave themselves open to competition in the future. If someone else comes and buys Commerce Bank, they can get big in Germany. Listen to what uh, von Molka told me. Yes, we do envisage over time that industry consolidation will take place in Europe and the Deutsche Bank wants to be part of that. Um, the timing and the specific form of that obviously remains to be seen. We've talked a lot about doing our homework to continue Uh, executing on our plans, executing on the restructuring of the company and the improvement in our shareholder returns. So not only did they discuss um, the fact that Commerce Bank could become really serious competition if they get taken over by a European competitor, they do want to stay in the consolidation of European banks going forward, just not right now and not with this target. Matt Miller, thank you so much. Uh, speaking from Germany, his Thanks, conversation Matt. moments ago with our chief financial officer of DBK. John Teitz joins us uh, right now. He has been just brilliant on not only the American ramifications of what we see uh, with European banking, but the path forward of cross-border or intra-nation mergers as well. John Teitz, I just looked at the Bloomberg, and Deutsche Bank's employment has gone from 135,000 four or five years ago, down 32% to 92,000. Where do they optimally want to take that number? How much of a shrinkage is the shrinkage? Hi there. Um, well, the fall, a lot of it has been um, shedding IB jobs and also disposing of um, sort of some retail units. The high cost base is associated with the investment banks, most particularly in the US. So you're probably going to see another five or 10,000 that will make a very material difference to the cost-income ratio, provided it's coming from the investment banking franchise, because I could lop a third off that number, but not really move the dial on cost-income ratio, because it's going to be the very unprofitable domestic retail. 
Not sure what to read into the price action of this morning, John, because, of course, as you've pointed out and others have as well, it removes the prospect of a cash call for Deutsche Bank. So we had a very brief, small relief rally for Deutsche Bank. The stock was up almost 5%. It's now positive about a tenth of 1%. Can we take anything away from this morning's price action, both in debt and in equity? Well, Deutsche is back on the naughty step. I mean, it's got the same problems. It doesn't have a sort of a bit of misdirection. Here's two years of further restructuring. Um, and whilst it's not expensive, is there any way that I can see over the next two or three years consensus going anything other than flat to south? No. So if you wanted to fund, I don't know, the other side of the Commerce Bank because you thought that ING was interested, and that's, I mean, ING does own um, something in Poland which could make Commerce Bank's M Bank stake interesting, or if Unicredit was interested, um, you can see a lot of reasons why Commerce Bank stays in play. And if you wanted to fund that, I guess some people are going to think, well, I can put my Deutsche Bank shorts back on fairly soon because it has rallied for no reason and the outlook's still pretty grim. The issue myself and so many others have had with this deal over the last few months, John, is hardly anyone thought it made sense. Hardly anybody at all thought it made sense to have a big national champion in Germany when everybody in Europe seemingly wanted a big cross-border deal between perhaps Unicredit and Commerce Bank. So it leaves Deutsche Bank essentially wasting another few months of what could have been spent on the prospect of another turnaround plan. And now we need to come up with a fifth one. And I'm wondering what that is, John. Well, I mean, the fact is both of these two are warrants on rising rates. And a year ago, we thought rates would be going high. And now we know that we'll be lucky if we get 10 bips more in Europe over the next two years. So the reason they were talking was they really are in last chance saloon. Um, in terms of cross-border M&A, there aren't many combinations that make sense. But we do have a few big Europeans, like a BMP, and they've got a bit of Germany. Even think think Handelsbank, and I mean they're quite big in um, the UK. They've got a big German business, so there's there's a fair bit of overlap. But we're not going to get the huge M and A for another year or two. But small domestic consolidation does make sense because at least then you've got a better excuse to close branches. What are they doing in the skyscrapers of Wall Street this morning and of Midtown Manhattan and of the construction site on Park Avenue? How do the American banks take advantage of all this turmoil? Well, presumably they're just going to cherry pick anybody that's still at Deutsche that's good. Because, I mean, that's all you need to do. The the writing has to be on the wall for quite a few of the exposures. And on a three to five year view, is Deutsche Bank going to be anywhere near the size it is in the US as now? No. Um, in terms of what the CFO was talking about wanting to be a player in M&A, I don't buy that on the banking side at all. But clearly we know that the asset and wealth management space is going to be interesting. And does a UBS-DWS combination make sense? Personally, perhaps not. But then think Amundi, think Societe Generale Credit Agricole, think Pioneer, think Intesa. There's a lot to do for a lot of these universal banks across Europe in terms of their life insurance businesses, their asset managers and the wealth management. So Deutsche has still got plenty to do um, and it should be able to get its ROE from two to five over two years on its own. Yes, granted, that's pathetic, but that's why the, um, the, the share price is trading at 0.3 times tangible book. This is potentially the fifth turnaround then since John 2015. John Tice knows them all. <laughs> the fifth turnaround plan potentially since 2015 on the horizon. Are we sure that the same management team will be leading this one, John? Well, I think, I, what's the point of changing saving? Because he's ex-retail. Yeah. This isn't going to be a giant investment bank. This isn't a push to be last man standing. You go back five years, Deutsche and Barclays were having the fight about who will be last man standing. There's only Jez Staley now still having that debate and... 
as you can see <coughs> even today yeah struggling so i don't see the point of changing right um change, just change his task change his focus and get him to put his uh, hands up and say look it's going to be five years and we're going to get six percent roe uh, sorry chaps but that's the best we can manage John Tice is always Thanks, John. beyond valuable for our audience of Global Wall Street and the rest of you at listening as well. He's with Bloomberg Intelligence. Vishita Rupachur joining us. Morgan Stanley's Head of Fixed Income Research and Director of Quantitative Research as well joins us here in New York. Vishy, this has been so tough, so confusing for so many people, including myself. I just don't know where to look in FX anymore to make sense of what is happening. What is happening right now? You can add me to the, the confusing club, the, the confused club. I think this has been a really confounding uh, thing to look at. That we have we have really underestimated the the strength of the the dollar. Uh, I think the what we have underestimated is the the effect of the the, the the enormous amount of liquidity that seems to be a flush in the system, driving towards driving the dollar uh, you know higher than we had really expected. Uh, and it is it's truly confounding. And I'm it's hard to now see uh, the the sustained. Um, strength in dollar along with uh, the, all the anomalies that we are seeing. We're seeing the anomalies of the risk markets uh, rallying at the same time, rates rallying at the same time, crude rallying yeah. and dollar strengthening. This combination uh, it seems uh, is very confounding and seems very unsustainable to us. Regimes change. In foreign exchange, they can change quite quickly. Just in terms of the house view from the team led by Hans Redeker over at Morgan Stanley, how should we be framing the FX market? What is the appropriate, the most efficient way of thinking about how some of these currencies are behaving? I, we think the, the, the particular, I think the thing that we want to watch and the thing that Hans would tell, tell you to watch is really the, where is the flow of liquidity uh, happening? And the, I would consider it to be non-hedged um, do- flows into dollar and dollar assets. So this and is a Buy America story, which which dominated much of 2018. In, you see a repeat, a replay of that. It it is it is that, but that how long it is sustainable. Um, that's very questionable. I think we, if you, when you talk about credit, it's hard to see that to be a sustainable story when, especially mm-hmm. in the front end, the opportunity set for, say, Asian or Japanese investors uh, for into, into front end of the credit is really not appealing. You're almost getting into a negative territory um, on a hedged basis. So it has to be an unhedged uh, story, right. and that, that brings a, a lot of challenges. And a lot of challenges and a lot of exposure as well. Let's go all quant here in the final minute that we have with you. That systemic risk, uh, Greek letters, epsilon, we're out there with a, a known and unknown amount of epsilon. How much unknown is out there right now in the linked quantitative system? I think there's a, a lot of uncertainty, and, and the uncertainty is confounding on multiple, on, from, on multiple fronts. And so uh, we are, I would say the 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 whole um, the investor universe is blocked in on I would consider three different things that the Fed has completely Fed right. broadly and the central banks you know even more broadly um, have completely been will be remain very dovish. The China growth has troughed and right. we are looking at an upside and trade tensions have all okay. But off. then as we unwind from that, is it a jump condition or can we manage it forward as Chairman Powell would like? 
one would hope that it is i would say it is a very challenging to uh, to manage right. as the later in the cycle we get and the higher the valuations get it is increasing right. to me in my mind it is harder and right. harder to manage without any right. um, you know volatility and volatility Another point is extremely low and has driven. Right. We are at really, really low points across universe, well, across all assets. Can you stay around for another three hours? <laughs> can, he make it, can, he, to, can he make it through to tomorrow? I don't know. Yeah, can we keep him for Bloomberg Real Yield? You could do him on Oh, my <laughs> word. Or you could run a sod from what we've got here. Vishay Trapper or Morgan Stanley. Thank, Thank you. you. New weakness on Euro uh, right now. sense i had the clearest memory john farrell of the new hampshire of 1987 into 88 and a senator from delaware not feeling well joining us now from new hampshire greg Villiers with agf toronto uh, as well greg i I, i'm going to cut to the chase because of time vice president biden has been not fragile but enthusiastic but at times ill over a, a lengthy political career does he have the stamina to move this thing forward over the next 18 months? I do think he does have the stamina, Tom. I think he's got another very important asset, and that's organized labor. That's going to yeah. be the core of his support. Uh, it's going to pro- perhaps propel him to a good showing in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. He's the front runner. Right. Okay, he's the front runner, but it's not the organized labor of September of 1987, is it? No, it's not. It's not as strong. But you've also got a strong organization for Biden in places like South Carolina, where he'll do very well with African-Americans, unlike Bernie Sanders. Let's just talk about how organized this campaign may well be. His first appearance is on The View, reportedly tomorrow, uh, for our international listeners. We didn't get him? Listeners. We did not get him. Damn. He will be on The View here in America. We have Vellier. That's better. How important do you think that choice is to go on The View tomorrow? Well, I think it's important because he's perhaps, as Tom said, fragile uh, with female voters. I think he needs to shore up his support and uh, make it clear that his uh, creepy shoulder massages were were nothing more than uh, something out of a different generation. Greg, uh, Marty Schenker, our chief content officer, alluded back to Reagan uh, earlier. Ronald Reagan's prescription was to go right and then flip and go centrist to the election. Does that formula work anymore? Can Vice President Biden go progressive, go social democratic, socialist, whatever it is, and then bring it on back to the land of Pelosi and Steny Hoyer? Well, that's going to be his his strategy, obviously, and I I think he can, but he's got an awful lot of Democrats saying provocative Mm -hmm. things about taxes, voting rights for uh, convicted murderers in prison, all this crazy stuff we heard earlier this week in the town hall from New Hampshire. He's part of a party that has opened up the moderate lane. Really, with the exception of Amy Klobuchar and Hickenlooper, there aren't any moderates, so that lane is wide open for Biden. Okay, I'll say it's wide open. We spoke to Howard Dean, Dr. Dean of Vermont, earlier today, and he's all gung-ho, universal health care, as Howard Dean has been forever. Where is Joe Biden on the litmus paper of the last election on health care? 
uh, a moderate, certainly not one of the progressives. But I think Biden realizes he's got to be market friendly. He's got to raise some money from the markets. And I think that, uh, yes, he, he may have to swallow some progressive ideas, but he will be the centrist in the race. Well, let's talk about that, whether he will be pro-market. There are always these anti-business undertones to the Obama presidency. They turn around and say things like, you didn't build that. There was something incompatible with American capitalism and and the tone you would often get from that administration. Where does that leave the vice president, Joe Biden? Well, John, I, I think he would argue that he's from Scranton, PA. He's from an area that uh, is not part of the progressive movement and that he does understand capital formation and the creation of jobs, uh, all of the stuff that well, the markets want to hear. The problem is, if he wins the presidency, can he keep the rest of left at bay or will he have to yeah. compromise? Well, the, let me extend that and rip up the script here, Greg Vallier. If, if mm-hmm. Biden captures the nomination... If he gets a Ford momentum, whatever the news flow is, can you ever frame a Democrat Senate? Well, Tom, that's that's a big deal. If you got a Senate controlled by the Democrats and the House controlled by uh, liberals uh, after a Biden win, that would not be a great scenario for the markets. I think they would worry about yeah. a very activist agenda. Well, I want to give you an open question as you write your memo for today and then into tomorrow as well. What's the one thing about Vice President Biden that needs analysis right now away from all the punditry? His age. Uh, It's the elephant in the room, guys. You have to say it. Uh, He's had two brain aneurysms. Which I alluded to in New Hampshire in 87. Exactly. He's 76 years old. Uh, He sounds a lot like he's from a different generation. A lot of kids have never really heard of him. So age is the elephant in the room. You're the second one today to mention that. Greg Vallier, just because of news flow, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. This has been wonderful. Greg Vallier. Thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. Mr. Vallier, of course, writing that uh, really must-read morning note uh, as well with AGF Toronto uh, this morning. Karen, thanks so much. You know, as many of you know, I got off Facebook like everybody else. I, I just said I'm not doing Facebook and and that. So here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, John, I'm just going to point out that if you look at the FA screen, the financial analysis screen for Facebook, they're actually making money. And they're growing. Versus Netflix. And they're growing loads. It, it, it's just bizarre, the valuation of Netflix versus this cheap value trap called Facebook. Is it a value trap? Well, let's talk about that. Shira Overday joining us now, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. If anything, the multiple undervalues the growth that this company generates, doesn't it, Shira? Yeah, I think that's a fair point, that if you look at companies that are in Facebook's peer group, right, like Snap uh, and Twitter, those companies um, are not growing faster or not much faster in, in Snap's case than Facebook, they're, but they're valued more highly, at least on a price to revenue basis. So I think, you know, you can make a good argument that Facebook is relatively inexpensive compared to its peers. You want me to dive in here? Well, I can I go all to. CFA? You, you took a deep breath. Sure. I mean, I love what you say there. Free cash flow, Facebook, 15 billion. Yep. 12 months. Snap, free cash flow, negative 700 million. I mean, this thing is basically a Dow component compared to its competitors, isn't it? 
Yeah, I, I think that's a fair point that we now have seen Facebook over the course of it, certainly the last few years that it is like Google, this incredible combination of consistently high revenue yeah. growth and really high free cash flow. Did, then did you yeah. in the last 24 hours, did you hear a religion from Mr. Zuckerberg that it's like a new Facebook or a, a, a new management team or, you know, a new responsibility to, t- to push the critics away? I think they've been saying that for some time, you know, whether that's rhetoric or whether that's real from them, I think is an open question. But you, you certainly have heard from Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg for some time now that they're taking seriously the responsibility of overseeing these websites and apps that are basically among the Internet's most important communication and news distribution tools. And we've seen ways that those tools can be abused and in ways in which Facebook has been a poor steward of these really important um, Internet hangouts that they that it owns. Uh, So certainly they were saying all the right things in terms of being much more careful about oversight, protecting from violence and election manipulation attempts on Facebook and Instagram and and WhatsApp and other places. But yes, certainly they're not out of the woods yet by any stretch of the imagination. And that to me is the biggest risk to Facebook is this kind of overhang of regulatory intervention or people and advertisers fleeing Facebook if these problems get worse. I guess the good news is that management have finally owned the issue. I mean, it, it just sounds like that, listening to Mark Zuckerberg yesterday, finally, Shira, and, and you and I were both so critical of management and how they reacted to the problems and the data privacy issues. Do you get the feeling now they are actually owning the issue? I, I think I, I'm not comfortable saying that yet. There is still There are still so many problems that are, to be fair, very difficult to solve. But look, not very right. long ago, we saw those attacks in New Zealand where Facebook Live was used to live stream yep. these, this act of terrorism, right? And that is right. a product, Facebook Live, that doesn't should not exist, basically, and does. Sure, in the last minute we've got with you, let's segue over to Amazon. I guess they're out this afternoon. What will you look for from Fortress Bezos? Basically, the thing I look for at Amazon is growth. We've seen the last six months some niggles about the growth rate there that it looks like there's a significant slowdown. And so the question is, what happened in the first yeah. quarter with e-commerce? Well, the street the street is 31% growth 12 months trailing and down to 18% yep. growth forward. I mean, that's a ginormous move. It, it is. I mean, again, this has been a significant slowdown. And to me, it's a little puzzling because e-commerce as a market has continued to grow at a healthy rate. And uh, but yet Amazon is slowing down. So I'm not really sure what's happening there. Do you know who makes a cardboard in the cardboard boxes? Are you up to speed on that? Sure. Is that techie enough? I am unfamiliar with cardboard boxes. Who makes all the cardboard? I'm guessing. Oh, for for Amazon Prime today. I don't know. You you look at the. I mean, is that a business you want to get involved in? I don't know. I'm looking at my my front lobby, which is a small little cozy lobby, and they cram all the boxes in. There's a lot of boxes. Hundreds of boxes. Come in. You got some cutting edge business insight there, Tom. I did. It's, it's, you should make, it's a you value should, You should make the boxes. Sure, Sh- thank you. Sure, thank you so much. I find myself thanking our guests for tolerating us far too much, you know.
He is a professor at New York University. His book is the must read for those of you that are curious about this tech juggernaut we're living. The book is The Four. Scott Galloway joins us. Scott, are you going to freshen up the book? Do you rewrite edition two? Uh, well, first off, thanks for the kind words, uh, Tom. I think if you were going to write a sequel, it'd be probably called The One. And the company you mentioned, Amazon, is just firing on all 12,000 cylinders yeah. right now. It's really pulling away from the rest of the pack. But it's not really a tech company. I mean, in terms of you know the fancy stuff you talk about in the classroom, they're all unique and different, including Microsoft, which is tangential in the book. But there's just something different about this distributive societal nature of Amazon isn't there? Yeah, people describe it as a disruption platform, but I still think the reason for their success is something a little bit more mundane, and it's the things you look at every uh, day, Tom, and that is their core competence of storytelling and their kind of, I I don't know, his relentless maniacal focus on his truisms, of non-perishable truisms of consumer value, selection, and convenience have resulted in the cheapest cost of capital in the history of modern business. So it's just very difficult to compete with a company that can reinvest a hundred cents on the dollar when you can invest somewhere between seventy and ninety-two cents on the dollar. So, Scott, it's it's just amazing what that company, what Amazon has done, what Jeff Bezos has done, and you know some of the areas he goes into, whether it's you know uh, drones or, or more recently, you know the supermarket business, you know seem odd to a lot of investors and a lot of people. What, what do you think is behind some of his investments away from the core marketplace business? Uh, hi, Paul. Good, uh, good to be with you. Um, so I, I think at the end of the day, Amazon says, you know, what percentage of the consumer business do you want? And then, as IBM said in the hearings back in, I think, the 70s or 80s, he, he thinks, I want all of it. And Amazon I believe is entering or moving towards a space where your all of your commerce and all of your media can be delivered by one kind of membership or recurring revenue bundle in the form of Prime. And what Bezos did that was probably the most value accretive or shareholder accretive decision in the history of business, maybe the exception of Apple's decision to open stores, is he got out of a transactional kind of terrible business of retail where you have to reinvent your business every day and convince the consumer to come back into your store and went into a recurring revenue software-like business that's valued at a multiple of revenues versus a multiple of EBITDA called recurring revenue. And if you want to talk about a, a recurring revenue juggernaut, Microsoft, the most valuable company in the world as of today, has the ultimate recurring revenue relationship with the corporate world in the form of Microsoft Office. But Amazon Prime is probably a close number two. Anybody who cancels or breaks up with Prime has done it because their credit card has expired or they've moved in with someone else who has Prime. That's a nice way of putting it. To show how out front, Paul Sweeney, Mr. Galloway is chapter eight, the T algorithm, what it takes to get to a trillion. <laughs> exactly. So, Scott, n- another company that features prominently in, in your book and in your work over the years is Facebook. And you know, they just reported another a strong quarter uh, last night. Stocks up about seven uh, percent this morning. Uh, it now has a market cap of five hundred fifty-five billion dollars. But what was interesting is they paid a three billion dollar fine for the Federal Trade Commission and probably suggested that there's more to come. What really is? I mean, let's quantify this risk. It's more than three billion dollars, isn't it, to Facebook? Yeah, but I would argue, and, and Tom, you would love this book. I don't know if you've read uh, Professor Timothy Wu's book, The Curse of Bigness. Yep, it's but on the desk. He, he, he says in the book that a, a key step on the road to tyranny is when the government 
is no longer a countervailing force to the private sector, but as a co-conspirator. And I would argue that the actions by the FTC have essentially and maybe unwittingly made them a co-conspirator in what is an organization that has become somewhat dangerous. Because when Facebook announces that they're setting aside three to five billion dollars for a fine, and the next morning the stock is up by about thirty-five billion, what they're saying is is this fine is not doing its job. A fine is supposed to be the amount times the risk of getting caught serves as an effective deterrent. Right. And when Facebook can bring certainty to the markets that it's washing its hands of this problem for about seven weeks of cash flow or two weeks right. of income, and the yeah. stock goes up $35 billion the next day, that means effectively the FTC is now a co-conspirator yeah. with Facebook. I can't disagree with that logic. Scott, I want you to talk about what Paul Sweeney and I deal with every day, which is sell-side analysts saying a given company wants the Amazon model, but they're really not Amazon. Everybody's out there, all these unicorns and all that, saying that that they want to just focus on revenues to hell with free cash flow, et cetera, et cetera. Are they all going to go down in flames? I mean, how do you identify you can actually get away with an Amazon philosophy? You know, that's the correct question, Tom. And I would argue that what you have here is an organization, again, I'll be in 41 board meetings in 2019. I did 38 last year. I'll grow at 10%. And they all have the same question, how do we compete with Amazon? And I have the same answer. It's impossible because we have entered into an entirely different construct of a relationship between the markets and investors and consumers where no company has been previously allowed to get to this level of dominance (laughs) without the market forcing them to be more profitable. So, The end of World War II, the Allies had 38 gallons of gasoline for every one that the Axis power had, so we could just show up and overwhelm them with brute force and gasoline. And Amazon is the company that can show up to any category with 38 gallons of gasoline. So I think we're at a point here, Tom, where the markets are no longer competitive, and the only real solution to oxygenating the marketplace requires antitrust action. Are they a standard oil of New Jersey? Are, come on, are, are Scott Galloway, are you going to be the new Ida Tarbell? I mean, is that what we're talking about? <laughs> I, I love the reference. I'd like My, my real hero is Brandeis here. Okay. We need to move back to a Brandeisian form of antitrust as opposed to the Chicago border kind of consumer harm test. But but yeah, I think I think I think it's time, Tom. I think we're overdue. Did we just have a nerd alert there? I think there might have been. That was just a massive nerd <laughs> antitrust alert. nerd alert. So, Scott, I was, that's kind of the path I was going to go down because I know it's it's a topic you raise in your book and in in your your work. Are we? You know, when you think about big U.S. tech, the regulatory backlash or the regulatory oversight—not backlash, oversight—has really just come from Europe, the European Union, going all the way back to Microsoft and and the dominance in their software. It, there's never really been an appetite in the U.S for a heavy regulatory hand of big tech. Is there any appetite for that to change, do you think, within Washington? I'd like to think, you know, I, I don't want to think the world is what it is and that they're just going to continue to do this. I think the world is what we make of it, and we are starting to hear more noises. But you're absolutely right. Where we're going to see the war against big tech break out is where every major conflict of the 20th century broke out, and that is continental Europe. And it's just straight logic and math, because here in the U.S., we're net gainers from big tech. Now, the problem with that statement is the word net, because we're having an important conversation around some of the negative externalities of big tech. But on the whole, we're likely net gainers. And Mm -hmm. I say that as a critic. Europe is not a net gainer. 
they get all of the downside, the job destruction, the monopoly abuse, the weaponization of these platforms to divert their elections. But there are very few university buildings or hospital wings named after Facebook or Google billionaires. This is stiff in the backbone of EU regulators. We got to leave there. Scott Galloway, again, congratulations. Two years ago, just exceptionally prescient book for any of you flabbergasted by the tech juggernaut. The four, I can't say enough about it. The hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, and somewhere in his 41 board meetings. Scott Galloway will write the second edition. We need that out uh, within 12 months. He is at New York University. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.